Let's open our Bibles to the book of John, the sixth chapter. And we're going to jump right down into the 26th and 27th verse tonight. Then we're going to back up right after we read these verses, just a few verses into the text. And we'll see what um, Christ is referencing in verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. So back up with me for just a moment. Verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And now when evening came, he, his disciples went down to the sea and gathering, excuse me, and getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be steered up because of a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking in the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, Let it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And now notice our text in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you. Stop there for just a moment. One of the first things that we need to recognize about this particular text is the fact, as Jesus always does, as he does here, as he has done elsewhere in Scripture, he gets right to the point. And oftentimes, whenever Christ comes to the point of something, it involves the fact that He has looked on the heart of those to whom He is speaking. And that is exactly what He does here. 
The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that everything is naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. God sees everything. And one of the things He always sees is inside of us. He sees our hearts. He looks on our hearts. We know that from the Old Testament. God told the prophet and the prophet told David's family that God does not look on the outward countenance as man does, but He looks at the heart. And so what Christ is doing here, He's looking at the heart of these individuals. And they're communicating to Him this idea that amongst them there's some kind of genuine interest. You can see that whenever you go back to the 25th verse. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus doesn't even answer the question. What He does do is He addresses the greater problem. Not how He arrived at the location, but the condition of their hearts. And notice what He said to them. Truly, truly. In the Greek, it is Amen, Amen. He uses this statement in this context multiple times. Look down to verse 32. Truly, truly, if it's the King James you're reading, it is verily, verily, I say to you. Move from there to verse 47. Again, truly, truly, I say to you. He who believes has eternal life. And again, the fourth time in verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you. Don't underestimate the power of that statement. Because whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, He's actually appealing to the absolute certainty of something. Something to which there is absolutely no doubt as far as the reality of it exists. He himself is referred to as the Amen. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14, that is one of his names. The text says, who says the Amen, the faithful and true. In a sense, he's invoking an aspect of His name, truth. And what He says to them here is truth concerning their heart. Look at the text again. Truly, truly, I say to you, He's very direct with them, you seek Me. So He's saying, they do seek Him. Take a look at it there. You seek Me. They are seeking Him. They have, in order to get to where He is at, they have had to have gotten into these small boats 
and they've had to go through the effort of rowing across the water. They had to find him out. They had to discover him. But notice what he says. You seek me, and then he adds this caveat, not because you saw the signs. Not because you saw the signs. What's he talking about whenever he says that? is that the signs that Christ performed, in this case, the feeding of the people, starting back up in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, where he fed 5,000 people there, and not only these signs, but other signs that they had witnessed as well, and even this sign at the end of it here, where he had gone to the other side. And perhaps at one point they had seen the importance of those signs, but then that importance quickly turned or degraded into something else. And he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs. The significance of the signs is simply this. It was through these signs that God was demonstrating that Jesus Christ was indeed the Christ and He spoke for God. That was the significance of the signs. As a matter of fact, go with me to Acts chapter 14 for a moment. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas have been performing signs. And God tells us here the reason for the signs Verse 3, Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. God used the signs and the wonders to communicate Christ was indeed the Christ, that he also was bringing God's message. Look with me to the book of Matthew for a moment. Chapter 11. Matthew 11. Move down in the text to... Well, let's start in verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. And then Jesus said, and this is what they had heard, this is what they had seen. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to him, or to them. 
Obviously a fulfillment of Old Testament text, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, and Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. But very pointedly, what was it they were to communicate to John? The signs that accompanied the Messiah. Although the Old Testament prophets performed signs and they performed wonders, no one performed them in the Old Testament to the extent that Christ Himself was performing them. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the, deaf are, the dead are raised up. And they have the, those who are poor have the gospel preached to them. Powerful indication. Indeed is the Christ. Go with me to John chapter 2. Whenever you turn to John 2, turn to a similar incident. John chapter 2. Now these individuals were seeking Christ in one sense because of the signs on the surface but they, like those that are mentioned in John 6, had a greater motive. Look at verse 23. John 2, 23. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, that is Christ, during the feast many believed in His name, observing the signs which He was doing. So these individuals saw the signs, and they believed in His name. But notice the next text. But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Notice the text as it goes on into the third chapter. In contrast, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The word that's translated here now can also be translated but. So chapter 3, verse 1 is putting Nicodemus in his encounter with Christ into a contrast with those previously mentioned. This man, verse 2, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had a greater understanding of the significance of those signs. He recognized that they were pointing out the fact that God was with Christ. Now Nicodemus is not a saved man, but we could say he could read the writing on the wall. He could see and read the clear, explicit signs. Take a look back with me now to John chapter 6. In John 6, verse 26, Truly, truly, this is an absolute certainty, Christ is saying. There is no question about it. There is no doubt about it. There is no reason to dialogue over it and debate it in that dialogue. You do not seek me because you saw the signs. In this translation, you seek me not 
because you saw the signs. In a sense, he's saying, you really, at the end of the day, aren't looking at me and pursuing me because of the real reason I am here. And then he told them why they were seeking him. Take a look at it. But, here's why you're seeking me. Because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Here's why you're seeking me. It's just a very natural base reason why you, why you are coming and following me. You're following me because your belly was full. You're following me because your natural man was satisfied in some way. Your physical appetite was soothed. That's why you're here. That's the reason for you coming. Beloved, that is the way of the natural man. These individuals weighed the natural over the spiritual. Or they weighed the natural beside the spiritual. And they put the priority on the natural. That's what's going on here. These were the kinds of individuals that Christ was addressing. Notice it again. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Take a look in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. We see this in both the Old and the New Testaments. In Luke 12, look to verse 16. Jesus speaking here the parable of the, what we refer to as the rich man. Verse 16 says, The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That was these individuals. Only their treasure wasn't found in barns, it was found in their bellies. Their treasure was what satisfied their natural appetite for food. They valued it over the reality of who Christ was and why He had come. We see it again in Matthew. Look to Matthew chapter 13. Here in Matthew 13, Jesus explains the parable of the sower. 
And very specifically in verse 20, he's talking about the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This individual wasn't concerned ultimately about the word of God, about the riches of the gospel, those spiritual blessings from on high, but the carnal things that perhaps could be gained by associating with these things that are from God. And similar to that is verse 22, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. These individuals are those that fall into the category Paul spoke to Timothy of in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. When Paul said there to Timothy that there were individuals who supposed that godliness was a means to financial gain. Go with me to the Old Testament, the book of Job. In Job, move to chapter 21. In Job 21, as we have addressed before, Job explains here the character of the ungodly. He says of them in verse 14, They say to God, Depart from us. We do not even desire to desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And notice the latter part of verse 15. And what would we gain if we entreat Him? What would we gain if we entreat Him? God is not the end in their worship. They are the end in their worship. What would we gain? Would we gain wealth? Would we gain health? Would we get our bellies filled? All of their concerns are for the natural. All for the natural. Look in your Bibles with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus categorizes a group of people that have that same pursuit here. In Matthew 6, move down in the text to verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory 
clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? Notice the emphasis here on natural. And what is it that worry concerns itself with most? Does worry concern itself most with the spiritual? No. What do you suppose worry concerns itself with the most? Take a look at the text. What shall we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? And then 32. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God isn't saying they're not important. He knows about them. He knows we need them. But they are not to be the priority. The characteristic of the Gentiles, in this case, the Gentiles are those who do not believe in God. The Gentiles, as conveyed in this verse, are those who would be without the knowledge of God, who can but only pursue the things of their natural selves, the natural things. Go back with me to John 6. Jesus, in our text, in His statement, now begins to set up the rest of what we see in chapter 6 in the light of what He says in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. The very first thing, as always, we have to point out, whenever Christ said, do not work for the food that perish, perishes, he was not endorsing a lifestyle of irresponsibility. That would be a contradiction. God has blessed work and He has told His people to labor. As a matter of fact, the Bible condemns those who would not work. They are referred to in the Old Testament as those who are lazy. In the New Testament, a person who does not provide and that provide materially as much as they are enabled to for their own selves and for the selves of their family, they're worse than a lost man. And if a person, he says in the New Testament, doesn't work, then he shouldn't eat. What Christ is talking about here, and listen closely, is a priority. What's the priority in our lives? Do not work for the food which perishes. 
but for the food which endures to eternal life. The word work there means to be committed to something. And what Christ is saying, you shouldn't be committed to the natural above the things of God. He said a similar statement in verse 33 of Matthew 6 that we were in a little while ago, and he put it this way, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God and His kingdom are to be first. The first priority in our lives. And that is a labor. Christ, by the way, is as we will see as we move into the book of, or the chapter of John 6 later on in this conversation, we'll clearly see that Christ is not endorsing the uh, false doctrine of working for salvation, working in order to earn salvation. But what He is communicating is that there is to be a priority in the life, and that priority is to be the spiritual, and that pursuit and that work is just that. It is going to be work. It's going to require spiritual warfare in our lives. Not to be saved, but to stand fast and faithful. And we'll see that as we get more into the text. But Jesus is pointing out to them clearly these people aren't in that camp at all. You are pursuing me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate and you were filled. Your concern is not for the spiritual. You do not value it. It has no place in you in respect to getting your own stomach filled. They would appear on the outside like they were religious. They've gone through a lot of effort just to get over to where they are. They got in a boat. They rowed across the water. I would afford them more credit than many today who do very little and yet profess to be religious or to know Christ whenever it comes to a commitment to Him. Then He told them, do not work for that food which perishes. Obviously, He's drawing a contrast here. The natural food, the things that the natural stomach pursues. He says, on the other hand, but here's what you are to work for. You're to work for the food that endures to eternal life. Look at Matthew again with me. And there to... Chapter 11. Matthew 11, move down in the text to verse 12. Here's a similar verse where Christ is communicating a similar truth. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men 
take it by force. Now that verse obviously is one of those texts of Scripture that is afforded many to twist the Word of God. But all that Christ ultimately is communicating here is if you are in pursuit of the things of God, you need to have the same mindset, the same diligence as those who would take a city by force. Only in this case, it's not a natural city, it's heaven. And you need to be seeking first the kingdom of God. That must be the priority. Not that it requires us to be violent to get into heaven, because heaven is a violent place. But again, a comparison. Look at chapter 9 of Luke for a similar statement as well. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The idea of denying oneself is here putting the proper perspective. It must be heaven first. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited, he says, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Look over to Luke 16. Here's a text very similar to Matthew 11 about taking heaven by force. In Luke 16, notice the text. Verse 16. The law and the prophets proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. The idea here is not that they are tearing down heaven and they're getting in there by their own natural means or natural efforts. But they are pursuing heaven forcefully in their lives. They are diligent. They are set on it. They have denied themselves. They are taking up their crosses daily. And they're following Christ. They're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Paul put it this way. And go with me to Philippians. Chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And move down in that text to verse 7. Paul, when he uses this word but here, he's putting what he is about to say in contrast with the things that he previously had naturally. 
And he says of those things, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Notice what he says. He counted those things as a loss so that he could gain Christ. He said in verse 9, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And now look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but notice what He said in verse 12. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He's saying, I'm seeking the kingdom of God first. He's saying that he's engaged in warfare in the pursuit of the things of God and he's willing to do that because of his fixation on Christ to know him all the more. This sixth chapter of John's powerful. Those verses there, especially as Jesus communicated to these people, you seek me not because of the signs, but because you ate and you were filled. You benefited naturally. And that's why you're here. Really, it's not for me, in a sense. It's for yourselves. You know, whenever you go into Christian bookstores and you see a multitude of books on the family and the business and how to accomplish all these things practically as a Christian, in a sense, that emphasis is betraying a heart that is set on the natural. I want success in this life. I want good children and certainly we want all of those things and we desire those things as God's people but over and above those things Christ must be first and the spiritual blessings must be first the things that are spiritual must have the priority God doesn't want His people to neglect the other, but He wants them to prioritize Him and the things of His kingdom.
And the difference between those who are believers and those who are not, one aspect of that difference is just that. In one camp, Christ is not there at all. Or if He is there, it's just on the surface and He is merely a means to an end. And yet in the other camp, He is there. And He is the end. He is the one who is worshipped. He is the one who is served. He is God. And He deserves absolute allegiance. And so, now, He begins this dialogue in John 6. With that in mind, notice the next phrase as we close. Labor for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. They responded to that. Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. As we move into John 6 in our study of this chapter, we're going to see the significance of that phrase, verse 29. It comes as a contrast to the people because they thought that like they had been raised, salvation was earned by work. And Jesus puts another contrast to them. It's not. Salvation is by faith. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you that is living and powerful. Lord, as we examine our own lives here in the light of Christ's words, we all tangle up this priority. Forgive us and have mercy on us. Cause us individually to repent of it and to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Cause us to see that that priority will either strengthen our hearts or betray it. Thank you for your goodness and your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.